This edition of The Bill Podcast is dedicated to Vic Gallucci, part of The Bill family for 14 years. Always a friendly face. He always had a stash of biscuits ready to share with us all in the CID office. Rest in peace, lovely man. Hello, you lovely people. You are listening to The Bill Podcast with me, Natalie Rolls. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. This is the start of a new era for the podcast as I take over the investigation for a while. I'm thrilled to have been asked by Oliver to guest present and catch up with some old friends from my McAllister days. We've recorded nine episodes so far, which, as always, will be released monthly on SoundCloud and iTunes for free. Though, as of this release, we are now being distributed on Amazon Music and Spotify. So, if you are listening on those platforms, we hope you enjoy the podcast. The Bill Podcast is sponsored by georgefairbrother.com. Now, in case you didn't know, George is the author of the Armstrong and Burton trilogy of political thrillers set in 1980s London. He is also the presenter of the Deck 4 podcast, which provides a deep dive into classic entertainment and culture. You can find links to all of George's books on his website. The Bill Podcast is also sponsored by shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk, a new publishing venture focusing on books covering lost or long-since-forgotten television gems. Their first release is Deadly Dangerous Tomorrow, which features the scripts of six missing episodes from the prophetic ecological series Doomwatch, edited by TV historian Michael Seeley. Now it's time for me to share my first interview with you all. This podcast is the first of a trilogy with one of my favourite people, the beautiful and very talented Beth Cordingly. Pop the kettle on and relax as two former Sunhill coppers enjoy a good old catch-up. I'll see you again at the end of the show. Hello, love. Are you in bed? I'm sitting on my bed, yeah. I'm not in bed. (laughs) (laughs) So Ollie's got us here today and I just think it's great because we're, we go back actually, Beth, don't we? Like the old days doing our GMTV stuff and everything. GMTV was our little like breakaway from the bill when we both finished, haven't we? What was the studio next door to the bill? Family Affairs. Family Affairs, because we always used to meet in the canteen area wasn't it it was a weird thing because you said it was like the tables were there but you never quite went over to the other tables it was like cool and then I joined because I did family affairs for a year then went off for a year and did other stuff and then started on the bill and then I found it really difficult when because it was studios were next to each other and they shared that canteen I was going into the canteen going oh who do I sit with the bill the porn you were torn 
Ah, uh, yeah. And I'm trying to think, who was your dressing room mate? I think I might have had a dressing room on my own when I first arrived, not because I was important, just because it was free. <laughs> <laughs> and then different people came in and joined me. It was 2002. 2002. Okay, because I started 2001. Did you? It's, yeah, that's it. I thought you were there before me. No, so no two, you were much more established than me. At that me. point, darling, maybe. <laughs> and then you've just gone, whoa! Where did you go to your drama school? What was drama school for you? So I, when I left school, I had a year doing working and traveling and stuff. I worked at a theatre called Comedia in Brighton, and there as their marketing officer. And then I went to Birmingham University and did English and drama. And then I wanted to go to drama school because I didn't have a clue about anything because no one in my family is in the industry. So, but I'd already done three years at university so I couldn't afford to do three years at drama school. So I went and did the post-grad one year at Weber Douglas, which is now closed, but was an amazing drama school and loads of really cool people went there. Yeah. And then after that, I came straight out of that and pretty soon after that when I worked at the orange tree and then I did family affairs fantastic and was your it was your dad your dad's the writer isn't he in the family he's yeah. the he's the artistic one isn't he yeah and there's a really nice story actually about because when I left drama school I didn't have an agent this is just a nice link to the bill and you know how funny things happen and your career goes a certain way and if it hadn't been for that one random conversation so my dad's always just loved sailing and he had a little sailing boat down at Brighton Marina and his best friend, Jeff, they used to hang out. And I was sort of writing to lots of agents and desperately trying to get work. And when I'd left drama school and my dad was talking to Jeff, his best mate, and he said, oh, it's so hard, you know, they're trying so hard and, you know, she just needs a bit of help and we don't know anyone and da, da, da. And, um, and Jeff went, oh, there's an actor. Chris Ellison, who played Burnside, he um he hangs out down here. Uh, let me have a chat with him, see if he knows anybody. And Chris Ellison, who I've never met, but I've told Mark Wing at this story a few times because they're really old friends. Jeff went and spoke to Chris and Chris went, oh, you know, I'll speak to my agent, Joy Jameson. She's only got 25 clients. She probably won't take her on, but she might, you know. And it was just really lucky that Joy, who's fantastic in space like this, <laughs> she, I got this phone call hello Beth it's Joy Jameson here she was looking for someone like me and she took me on without even seeing me do anything so then I had an agent so it was all thanks to Chris Ellison Burnside. and he's another Brighton boy isn't yeah. he he lives down here and he was my first guest appearance episode before I played McAllister so oh my god that had such a laugh and I really would love to bump into him down here yeah he was real hey you've moved from London to Brighton recently you are a Brighton girl yeah I'm from Brighton yeah it's really gorgeous I kind of wanted to move back for 25 years and when you were moving I was like move to Brighton you'll love it you'll love it I might move back and then it took me even longer and I kind of the thing I hate about the thing I didn't like about London I always felt a bit temporary in London it always kind of I think if you're brought up there you can kind of cope with it but to me I never really felt like it was home and I, I'm crazy about the sea, obviously, being from Brighton, but also it's just really friendly down here and really relaxed. And I love the vibe. So I always knew I wanted to come back. And then, and I separated from my husband five years ago, but then I still couldn't decide because we're really close and a lot, he was able to see Eliza load. So that was another difficult thing. And then finally, 
it was in the summer and it was Eliza that pushed us. She was like, come on, mum, I want to move to Brighton. So we did it. And I was like, I don't know. And I literally was changing my mind day to day, day to day, because I kept thinking, well, the thing I hate about London is the rat race. But if you step out of the rat race, are you kind of not giving up? But, you know, is it then are you taking yourself out of the rat race so that then actually doesn't make any difference at all? For me, it was the same thing. I was just so like London, London, London. And then maybe it's an age thing. Maybe it's the family thing. But you start not doing the things that are on your doorstep, like going to the theatre. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I found. I was like weighing it up going, hang on, I'm, this is not right because I'm not, I'm not actually part of this now. In my 20s, rocking up to an audition in my mini and parking in Dean Street and Soho and going for coffee. And, you know, those days are gone. You can't do that. You have to travel by tube. You have to take the bus. And it was all an effort. Yeah. So that's that was the defining factor for me. And it was such a great time in the 90s. I don't think I could ever repeat that. Back when we were at the Bill, the studios in South Wimbledon, you and I were living Clapham. Yeah. We were both in Clapham and we used to frequent rather a lot a French restaurant. Yes, Gastro! The Bistro yeah. on Ben Street. Yeah, still there, the cafe. It's fantastic. We used to meet up and have lovely glasses of wine in the day and chew the fat and then like we'd have a day off. And so I think I got to know you more out out of school, I was just about to say, <laughs> out of the bill. Yeah, school. no, that's true. No, because I was uniform and you were, what's it called? Not uniform. Detective. <laughs> CID. CID. <laughs> not uniform. Not uniform. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really have much to do with each other but we did become really close didn't we we did and we had those odd scenes where there'd be those sort of you know the funeral scripts there'd be those on mass we'd all go off off for a jolly to the funeral (laughs) or the uh, (laughs) or there'd be a fire and we'd meet on those locations but we never actually did that many I don't think even scenes we didn't do that many scenes together because you had all the stuff with Stephen Hartley all that storyline with that stuff going on, I think, when I was around. And looking at Kerry Young's story, Ollie sent me a fantastic, I don't know, it, I'd never seen it. It was with um, Todd. Oh, Kerry's story, that little mini TV movie they made. <laughs> it was hilarious. I know, it's Todd, brilliant. Todd being evil Gabriel and, and narrating the whole thing. Well, Kerry, you made a mistake there, didn't you? <laughs> meeting with him and doing this and doing that. I know, it's brilliant. It was I was brilliant. really tough. Yeah, they did that after I died, didn't they? They did a little spin-off. It was so good. And it took me back to, I think when you're in, in the show, you do, we don't watch it. So we don't really know what's going on with the other yeah. characters. Yeah. What was your defining moment in Kerry's life? Would it be your personal life or would it be more the criminal side of stuff that you preferred? Well, that's a good question. Because they did, because when they brought us in, me and Roberta Taylor, and there was a whole group of us that came in, was with Paul Marquez, and that then and and the personal life came in much more when he yeah he brought in more of the kind of serial drama soap type aspect of it. Well, because the whole the whole thing with the character was, for the first year there was all that stuff with Scott Neal where she was <laughs> with um, Ashton, where she was she was. Um, in love with him and then married him and the whole world knew that he was gay apart from Kerry Young and then she <laughs> and then he he slept with the sergeant the night before their wedding and all that and it was all really fun because I remember doing stuff like 
I still have fun stuff with um, running around a market in a wedding dress and trying and doing a "You're nicked" to someone in a, when I was trying at a wedding dress. It's all that mad kind of stuff. Then she eventually found out. Then she had a miscarriage. Like that was a good storyline, actually. I remember feeling quite chuffed that they gave me that storyline because you know it was something you could really find out about and research and felt quite important to those things that when they put them on screen they feel quite a bit of a privilege to kind of be able to work on so that was a good storyline and then um and then I remember talking to Paul and saying oh because because I'd been such a my character in Family Affairs had been such a tearaway and so nasty and naughty she was kind of doing coke and she was doing lap dancing she was 17 year old really naughty so I'd said to Paul, I'm fed up of being nasty. I want to be someone nice. So that's why the whole thing was that Kerry was going to be nice. But then she was a bit of a victim because stuff just kept happening to her. So then we had a chat about halfway through. And I was like, yeah, I'm fed up with being nice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then she started having the storylines I really loved. Actually, I was really lucky was when she when she went undercover and then went over to the those, that was probably my favorite storylines because they were quite gritty. So I went undercover and there was with Linda Bellingham and Alec McSweeney, I got involved with these gangsters undercover and it was all uh, with Smithy coming and finding me and going, what are you doing here? And me going, shh, you're going to blow the whole operation. And then my character went to the other side because she got all confused because she wasn't, you know, you didn't know whether she'd gone over to the dark side or not. But the other storyline I really thought was brilliant was there was something I was doing when Daniel McPherson was still in the show, I remember because it was an episode that we did. Uh, where there was, it was a kind of big one-off where there was a guy that had a bomb strapped to him. Do you remember that episode? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And it was really? me trying to talk him down and he had this bomb and he was a brilliant actor. He was like really panicking and shaking and I was trying to get him to stay with me, stay with me, stay with me and then Cameron, Daniel's character, kept going on at me and I took my eyes off this guy for one minute to answer back to Cameron and, he, and then the guy with the bomb strapped on him panicked and moved and blew up and there was rubble everywhere and I remember that was kind of an amazing episode to do when they do those big like when they do big fires or big you know they did this yeah explosion and we we're all covered in dust and rubble and stuff so and then there was some quite emotional PTSD scenes after that which were really good actually yeah she had a great arc Kerry she was really yeah. well written for you were yeah, blessed really on that one. you yeah. had a great arc yeah. Yeah, you could tune into as an actor. It was like you, I mean, people downplay the bill, but it was it was so we were lucky, so lucky. Yeah. To have you really were. You really got to act like properly act, kind of. Yeah, re some yeah. really really meaty storylines that you could really get your teeth into. I agree with you. Yeah, because you had you had lows as well, didn't you? With your all the did you have a miscarriage? Your because I remember when you um a, probably. <laughs> You had that pregnancy. I I remember remember. with the pregnancy bump because we used to just no. see on a more backstage. You went yeah. around the pregnancy bump for it. I had the bump because I went into labour when I was up against the gun with Mr. Chandler. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't miscarry because Andrew is alive somewhere. <laughs> He's alive and kicking somewhere. However old he is. I think we did work out how old he would be. And actually, Stephen did answer. and Because I, I said, someone asked me this, and I couldn't answer. What was our son's name? And he said, I don't know. I was dead. Because <laughs> I remember there were so many guest actors that oh, came yeah. on that were brilliant. I My one was Russell Tovey. I always singled him out. I was just like, whoever this kid is, he's going to be big. Yeah. And, of course, he is. 
Was there anyone that you you did scenes with? You're really lucky as a as a what's the opposite to a guest? What regular? regular. <laughs> the regular golf. As a regular, because the all these fantastic guests coming in, like some of them will be quite, you know, stars from before, and people go, "Oh my god, I can't believe you're working with so and so." Yeah, and then, like you say, there would be some really talented youngsters coming through. I remember a girl coming through and thinking, oh, "She's going to be brilliant," and then you see them popping up on things, don't you? And you go, "Oh, I work with them." And but I suppose I, for me, what well, I think I was really lucky to work with Linda Bellingham actually she wanted to do a more sort of gritty character and so because they'd given her sort of gangster boss part uh we had to do some great scenes with her you know when I was trying to pretend to be on their side on the gangster's side and they had these um Eastern European prostitutes being kept in a room upstairs which really I knew. she was brilliant Linda she was like hit her go on hit her and I had to punch this girl in the face who I was actually trying to help um, and all that kind of stuff and I loved working with her I got to know her really well we were friends after that and I went to her wedding and stuff and um oh yeah so and it's that kind of thing you that's the lovely thing about this work actually isn't it you get to work we get to meet and work with so many special people that come into your lives and they're your family for a bit and then you move into another job and the family gets just bigger and bigger doesn't it I've got to go back to the kissing you had so many kisses in that show Oh my god! Has I got thought I was a kisser, <laughs> but you what? had so many kisses. I was a village bike. Oh my <laughs> god! I know. I think I probably had more on Family Affairs actually. That show before got exhausted me because I had a husband when I joined. The, no, a fiance when I joined the show, but I don't think I had to kiss him, Simon. And then I had Luke. That happened pretty quickly. And then there was, oh yeah, there was all the Smithy stuff, and then there was all the. Wasn't it? Didn't you kiss Ren, Rene? Well, yeah, my first scene was kissing Ren. Actually, that's quite a funny story because so Rene Zaga, what was his character name? Nick Klein. Oh yeah, Nick Klein. So that first scene, they did that one of those classic entrances of a new character, which you see quite a lot in soaps and stuff. Where so we met um, out in a club, and I he was pretending to be a pilot, and I was pretending to be a hairdresser, I think. You were, you were, because yeah. I saw it this morning. I did a quick little... Oh, Matt! Uh, yeah, I did. And, and all glammed up with the lip gloss and the shiny top. And then we had some scene snogging down an alleyway. And then the whole thing was, you know, now introducing to all of you our new person that's joining the team. And it was Kerry Young and me and Nick Klein's eyes <laughs> <were> like. <laughs> but what was really funny is, as Nat knows very well, I blush all the time. It's got slightly better as I've, got, as I've got older, but not really. And I particularly blush at things like that because I always I always want to be one of those really cool actresses that goes, oh, yeah, you know, I can snog people without worrying about it. Just take it in my stride. And I'm not very cool about stuff like that. So <laughs> with Rene, you won't mind me telling this, it was hilarious. So we did that scene and I wanted to be all cool and not blush. So as soon as you, if you're, if you're someone who blushes, as soon as you say to yourself, right, it'll be really embarrassing if you blush, you start going red. So I started going red, not during the actual scene, but like when I first met him, I thought, oh God, we've got to snog, that's embarrassing. And then we did it. And then ev literally for the two years I was on the show, every single time I saw Rene, like he'd walk down the corridor or something, I'd just go red. <laughs> and he, I remember him walking down the corridor once and I was a beat shoot and he was like, <laughs> oh, bear. <laughs> that's so ridiculous. Uh, I just got this thing in my head. It's Rene. I'm going to go red. 
<laughs> I did that with Scott Maslin, actually. Did you? Yeah, because same thing. It's like, I'm kissing Scott today. Yeah. That's really hard day's work. <laughs> so embarrassing. And I've even had, like, hypnotherapy about it where, uh, not hypnotherapy, actually, because he wouldn't give, my therapist wouldn't give me hypnotherapy on it because he said, no, I'm not going to hypnotize you not to blush. It's a natural reaction. You just have to say to the person, I'm going to blush. That's what, you have to own it, apparently. And then you go red and then... You have to own your blush. But lots of good people blush. Lots of my favourite people blush. I blushed last week. I had a theatre audition. And I've not done a theatre audition for so long. But it was improv. And they said it would take an hour. And you know, just your reaction going... Oh, horrendous. I thought, I've got to do this because I need to get over the fact that, you know, we've all been in lockdown. We've all had to do self-tapes, which are a nightmare. I don't know if you find them a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They are hideous yeah. because you're yeah. just, you're having to do all the setting up. You're not, you're playing off someone, but you're not. There's, it, it's just a really weird one. So when you actually walking into a room of actors and a director, the artistic director, it was like, oh, this is really exciting. Aww. But then they did the, we did warm-ups. And then we had to get into the ring and be given a cue to walk into the ring and talk. So immediately you just go, because you're not used to being, it was such a weird experience. Very exposing. It was really exposing. It was great fun. And it took two, two hours, three quarters. It was nearly three hours on a Friday evening. And I walked out of there going, you know what, even if I don't get this, it's like, you know, it's okay because I've just gone through that. And yeah. I think as actors, we do that. We do sort of take all that stuff on and start picking it afterwards. I was like, oh, no, why did I say that? You know, the, this thing was a political piece. Yeah. So they were really trying to find what our passions were as human beings as far as world news, all of those things. But when it came to me, I stood in the ring and started talking about my dog. Why? You know, you just think, why did I do that? And I came out going, what was that about? Everyone was talking about, you know, being sustainable with their food and, you know, eco this and I'm a vegan and it all really got heavy. And I think I just wanted to change it up and go, right, I'm going to talk about my passion. My dog is my passion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go a bit lighter. Anyway, I didn't get the job. Have you got a regrettable audition that you've ever done and you've, you know, you've walked out and done that sort of like, why did you use that? Millions. There you go. <laughs> and you kind of, it's that weird thing, isn't it? Where the thing is you go into an audition and you have the adrenaline going. And I always joke that, you know, I always get the jobs that I'm not that bothered about or that I don't want because you obviously you give off an energy of being like, this is fine. I can do this. I could do this standing on my head, or or, or if if not that, just like you know, oh yeah. So you don't give off that needy kind of desire thing. Brian Cranston. There's a brilliant clip I've watched. Brian Cranston talking about this, and he says, you know, people don't like needy people. You know, in relationships or whatever, no one wants to go out with a needy person. So you try and think, don't be needy. Don't be too keen. You know, look confident, and and you try and think, how do you try and be like you would be in the auditions that you're kind of more chilled about when it's something you really want like a big film or a big whatever and um yeah I think it's really hard I remember going for an audition for 
a film this is years ago i mean i've had so many of these a film and it was the director who directed bend it like beckham and i'd made the mistake of watching bend it like beckham the night before and i just went in and i they must have just thought it was insane i was mm-hmm. kind of like oh my god i watched that last night and it's just so brilliant it's so brilliant you're so talented and you know you could see you could literally see me go like this <laughs> and um and then at the end they were like thanks very much coming in and i went no no it's a pleasure <laughs> it's just so cringe and all other ones where you go in and you think well this is going well and you start talking and you you start going and your adrenaline's going and then you think oh i'm really making them laugh i'm being really funny i'm being really funny they think i'm really funny and there's five people on the panel staring at you <laughs> going and then you walk out and you just think oh it's like uh, a stroke or something it's oh, horrendous so i don't yeah. know it's about trying to breathe and just i don't know i quite often look at really successful film stars and think you know i was talking to a friend of mine the other day about uh, he said, oh, I just love Florence Pugh. And I said, oh, that's interesting. What do you love about her? And he said, I think it's her confidence. I saw her interviewed and she's so confident. I don't know whether it's a nature thing or a nurture thing, but confidence is everything really, isn't it? About that vibe you give off. There's some arenas where you'll feel really confident. And there's some arenas where for some reason you feel like you're not worthy of it. You know, it might be a type of drama that that you've always wanted to be in, whether it's a period drama or a Netflix series or whatever it is and you somehow think oh my god this would be so amazing this would be so amazing to be in this oh my god rather than thinking I had to be talked off the side of a cliff by a friend of mine last year she said you are a seasoned actress of 20 years you've been a lead at the RSC stop the imposter syndrome gods and it was like I suddenly was able to sort of see my career the way she would see it rather than being me in my head still being neurotic and kind of like you know, so grateful that somebody wants to give you a job. Because I think as an actor, sometimes you never really lose that feeling of, wow, was that okay? Do you think, you know? And then, of course, when you're doing it, you know you can do it and you're much more confident. But the the problem with an audition scenario is it can feel like a test sometimes. You came out of lockdown and went to the RSC, darling. You were on at the the Globe. That was the Globe. Yeah, you were on at the Globe playing Lady Capulet, <laughs> yeah. looking incredible. You had the most amazing costumes. You were just—I mean—and even that, you talked down. You are so gorgeous, Beth. You don't understand how gorgeous you are. You're such a beautiful human being, and your confidence should be. Yeah, your your how your journey's gone from just talking back from you know, your drama school days. And if you look on paper, what you've done, you've done, and you've produced a gorgeous daughter as well. <laughs> so, you know, bravo, bravo to you. Oh, can I just read this? Short film, Learning to Walk Again, selected for multiple festivals, including Venice Shorts. That was really cool, actually. I love doing that. That was weird because an old, old friend of mine, Sam, contacted me and said, I'm thinking of doing this film because he produces... Uh, Jamie Johnston and all these kind of things and he thought he said I want to have a go at the directing side of it and I was like he went I think you're doing this short film it's about this this and this and I went oh that's weird because it was basically about a um couple with a child who decide to go their separate ways and she wants to go home and I and he said and I found this place it's really amazing just outside Brighton it's called Devil's Dyke and I was like I went there yesterday with my daughter Sam I'm basically 
the character moving back home. And there was this hilarious scene we were filming when I was walking up the hill on the downs. And it was after she's left and she's gone. She has a big row with the husband and the, the ex-husband and they decide to move and they decide she's going to leave and go home. And uh, I had this scene where I was like, I just want to go home. And then I was walking up the hill and it was a sunny day. Uh, and we had this fantastic cameraman, Richard Swingle, and all this stuff. And it was brilliant. And Sam went, all right, can we go again? Um, Beck, can you try and look a bit less happy? Because I was literally walking out the door going, I'm home, I'm home. Like, for me, I was in Sound of Music or something. <laughs> I was supposed to be looking a bit distressed about the fact that my world had fallen apart. <laughs> but you, in real life, were so happy to come home. Yeah, and we're happy you're home in Brighton. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's brilliant. It's all brilliant. It's been amazing. What's your nearly job? Have you got one of those nearly jobs? Because I... In my 20s, before, I think I was about 23 or something like that, and there was one of these sort of big calls for a present. They were looking for a duo presenter for children's TV, which probably was the sort of Zoe Ball sort of type journey that would have been. Me and Dexter Fletcher, we went through all these auditions, and it was me and Dexter Fletcher that were going to be the sort of... uh, I know. When I look back, and it's really funny because both our agents turned down yeah. a two-year contract because they didn't want us to be, you know, when you think, where would that have gone if I'd gone in that direction? I mean, yeah. Dexter Fletcher's like Mr. Director now, isn't yeah, he? He's just like, whoa. But if you got one of those, like, nearlies. When I left Family Affairs, I was going up for this. Um, it was in the West End, and it was Noel Coward and... I had this weird Madonna moment that I've never had before or since of saying, well, I want to play Norma. She's the lead. And they were like, well, um, she's the lead. And I went, yeah, no, but it's the only, it's the only decent character. Because my agent said, had read it and said, well, you have to play Norma if you're going to be in this because it's the best character. And so I just sort of said it in this way and then sort of fought to get that part. They decided to take a chance on me and cast me as the lead in this big Western Noel Coward thing called Semi Mond. And at the same time, I was going up for a character in something little known show called The Office. Oh. It, wasn't, it wasn't the Lucy Davis part, it was another part. It was a similar character to who I'd played in Family Affairs and um, sort of naughty, grumpy sort of teenager character. They both came in at the same time and I think I'd got down to the last two or three or whatever. The, the theatre job came through and they said, you know, okay, we're going to give her the lead. And I was so thrilled because when I left drama school, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on at the West End and, of you know, course. do proper Noel Coward type play. And my agent was like, are you sure? Because if I ring and take you out of the, the BBC, it's the BBC. And I was like, no, I know, but I've played that character. I've been playing that character for a year. Like this, this is, you know, the West End is Noel Coward and it's Thelma Hall producing it. And, you know, it's really serious actor stuff. And da, da, da. anyway, so... <laughs> effectively not in the office <laughs> never mind never mind darling there's lots more bill chat to come in part two of my podcast with lovely beth which will be released next month If you can't wait until then, you can unlock the whole trilogy now on patreon.com forward slash the bill podcast. 
where there's over 80 hours of bonus content for you Bill fans to investigate. Plus my next podcasts with Raji James, Vic Singh and Jane Wall, Di Worrell. I've got to give huge thank you to the podcast's new theme music composer, the very clever Matthew Annis, who has recreated lots more theme tunes over on his YouTube channel at Matthew Annis Music. You've been listening to me, Natalie Rolls. You can find me on Twitter at Natalie Rolls Act and Instagram at Real Natalie Rolls. Follow The Bill Podcast on facebook.com forward slash The Bill Podcast. Now, I'm going to hand you over to a fellow Sun Hill CID sergeant, the wonderful Andrew McIntosh who is going to read out our closing credits after telling you about our brand new Dramatized podcast we've been working on together. Letter from Helvetica. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Hello, this is Andrew McIntosh and you have been listening to The Bill Podcast. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk The Bill Podcast is presented by the fabulous Natalie Rolls, who you might like to know co-stars with me in a brand new dramatised podcast, where we have both cast off our CID suits to play a collection of diverse characters. Letter from Helvetica is an eight-part comedy drama series taking the form of emails exchanged between Abigail Wesley, a talented young botanist played by Natalie, and her uncle John, an acerbic retired lieutenant colonel played by me. Abigail has been sent to research, among other things, Carver Carver route on the ever so slightly made up island of Burbango, a tiny speck of dormant volcano nestling among the 83 islands that make up the South Pacific nation of Vanuatu. My character, John Stotter, lives in a rambling old house in the not quite real village of Helvetica, which skulks in the far western reaches of Cornwall. Uncle to Abigail, the two enjoy a relationship that is considerably closer than that she has ever had with her own father. They resolve to write to each other regularly during her sojourn in the Southern Hemisphere. Letter from Helvetica is the collected chronicles, tales, musings and canards that constitute their correspondence, introducing us along the way to a veritable mishmash, jumble and salamagundi of characters, all of which we bring to life. There's Smiling Stephen, Martin the German, Zlata the House Elf and Derek Derek, to name but a few. Letter from Helvetica is releasing weekly on Sunday nights at 8pm BST on all good podcasting platforms. Do give us a listen. We'd love to hear what you think. 
Now, yes, back to Sun Hill. The Bill Podcast is produced by Oliver Crocker, co-produced by Ben Adams, Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Sarah Kuiper, Maz Mirabilis, Alex Mockler and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Ben Ashmore, Simon Banstead, Craig Beresford, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett, James Ledane, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Claire Norbury, Laura Pinifay, Michael Seeley, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Michael Weil, and Sarah Went. The theme music is composed by Matthew Annis. For over 80 hours of exclusive The Bill podcast content, including cast and crew commentaries, I've done a couple of those, reunions, I've done a couple of those too, reactions, pilgrimages, off-the-beat podcasts, and much more, join the investigation. Patreon.com forward slash The Bill Podcast. Oh, you lucky devils.